we're continuing on in our series in Acts. And the series is called Our Hearts Burn Within. And today, Paul, arguably the greatest Christian movement leader in history, and you could even argue that Paul is the greatest movement leader in the history of the world. Today, Paul steps onto the greatest platform that he has had. And this is like his TED Talk to the intellectual giants of the day. And and you could argue, when you look at what we're looking at today, that this is the beginning of the Western world turning Christian. And what happens in our verses is Paul steps into the great city, Athens. And what he finds there is a city that's full of life, but on the inside it is cold and dead. It's a frozen tundra. But Paul has a heart that is burning within him with news that he desires to share in this great city. And it's going to transform. It could, it, it's going to be the beginning of the Christian movement throughout the Western world. So let me read to you. We're in Acts 17. we got quite a bit of verses to read today. We're going to read from 16 to 34. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw, the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Therefore, then, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has fixed fixed a days on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And as this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. 
along whom also were Dionysius the Arabogite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, by the way, before we get started, we've been doing Q&A after the sermon each Sunday, but today we're not. We're, we have communion this Sunday, so we're not going to do Q&A, but we will pick back up with that next week. Now, here's our first point, the cold city. Now, the question we need to ask is, why is Paul in Athens alone? And the reason is because Paul's gotten himself into a bit of trouble, as he normally does. He's with all of his friends and his companions in another city, and he causes a bit of a disturbance for spreading this news of Christianity. And when he does this, he, he gets in a bit of trouble, and so his friends or companions send him out and say, we're going to pick up where you left off. You go on ahead of us. So Paul gets to Athens, and he calls for his friends to come, but in t- before they get there, he steps into the city alone. And when he gets there, he finds a city that's full of life, that is rich with history, And this is the place where the great philosophers went to learn and teach, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. This is like the intellectual metropolis of the world. And if you walked into Athens, you would also find that this is the place where there is the great literature of the day, there is the famous art of the day, and this is where the concept of human freedom came from, right here in this city. And what Paul then does is he walks into the marketplace. Now, it's not really a marketplace. The the Greek word is the agora, which means it's like the center of life. It's the center of ideas. It's the center of media, of communication. So in a day before Twitter, before social media, before blog posts, before social media influencers, before books that had print, before television, you had the agora. So Paul walks in to this area, and if he was a tourist, he could have walked around and seen the beautiful architecture. He could have gone into the art district and gone into the porticos and seen famous artists and their famous work. Or he could have walked the streets, and there he would have found intellectuals, thinkers of the day, arguing and debating over what is true, beautiful, good, and right. But he does not do any of that because he is no tourist. He walks among the statues of the idols. And when it says the city was filled with idols, the word is meant to make us think of a forest of idols. It said that Athens had more statues of gods than it had of people. Than it had people. And when Paul sees this, he becomes provoked or distressed. Why? Because he saw passionate devotion to dead things. An idol is something dead. It does nothing for you. It can't comfort you. It can't help you. It can't protect you. It can't move. And an idol is anything that you love most in your life. Or an idol is anything that you use to get to what you love most in your life. So you think of the good life. We all want the good life. What are you using to get there? That could be the idol of your life. What you love most, that's your idol. And and what these Greeks did is they would create a god of something, of anything. And they would use that god to get the thing that they love most. And, And the question is, why can't Paul just be like a normal person 
and walk through a city and just let the people be. And the reason is because he knows something that they don't know, and he probably knows something that we don't know. And that is, we become like our idols. We become like what we worship. We become like what we love most. Now, is Paul right in saying that? We read it earlier in our call to worship. And here's where this idea comes from. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way in the beginning, and you say, well, what is a human? God says, let us make man in our image. So we are made in the image of God, which means we mirror him. We reflect him. Now, so you think of a human as a living, breathing mirror. That's what you are. What defines a mirror? Whatever's in front of it. So whatever you love most, that's what you face. And as you face it, you begin to reflect it. So you become like that very thing that you love the most. And here's the problem with that. If you devote, your something to, if you devote yourself to something temporary, you become temporary. If you devote yourself to something eternal, you become eternal. If you devote yourself to something that's frozen, in order for it to survive, it will pray and feast off of you to live. What Paul has seen as he walked into the city is a city that's exchanging the warmth of eternity for a cold, frozen death. And that's why he's distressed. That's why he's provoked. And then here's our next point. So now he has this burning heart. Now the word provoke in Greek has to do with, this word is often used when describing God's reaction to idolatry or the worship of something that is in him. And if you go back to the Old Testament, the word jealousy is often used to describe God's emotion towards idolatry. Now, a lot of people don't like this phrase. I mean, here's how God says it. My name is jealousy for I'm a jealous God. A lot of people don't like this idea that God is jealous. In fact, Oprah, on one of her episodes, her big problem on that episode with the Old Testament was that God is called a jealous God, and she does not want to think of God that way. Now, if Oprah was here, I would tell her, Oprah, this is a good thing. And let me tell you why. When it says that God is jealous, it doesn't mean that he's jealous of you. It means he's jealous for you. And that is very different. He is not competing with you. He is competing for you. This is marriage type talk. This is covenantal love type talk. When God went to describe what we are like, he describes humanity, God's people like this. He said, in Jeremiah, he said, my people are like a woman under a tree who have spread her legs to idols. And then God goes on in the book of Hosea to explain to us what it is like for him to be in relationship with us. And he describes it this way in Hosea. He tells Hosea, a prophet, and Hosea is representing God in a way here. Hosea, go and I want you to marry a prostitute. I want you to give yourself over to her. And so he does. And he marries her. He takes her out of that life, rescues her, and gives her a good life. And then she runs from him. 
and she runs off and she goes back to whoring around, only she isn't being paid for it. Now she is paying for it. And then God says to Hosea, pursue her still. So he does. He pursues her all the way into what we could call an agora, a marketplace. And here's where he finds her. He finds her naked, bruised, and broken in this agora, in this marketplace, surrounded by men who are masters who are about to purchase her. And as she stands naked, broken, the bidding starts, and there's silence. No one wants her. But then... A voice like the sound of a golden bell rings out and says, she is mine. And she looks up and she sees it's her Hosea. He's come for her. And she thinks, even after all of this, even after all that I have done to him, he's still pursuing me now. And finally, now she begins to understand his love for her. And he wins her over. And this is exactly what God does with us. And this is the same emotion that Paul is feeling when it says he's been provoked or distressed. It's the same word. And what's going on with Paul is he's angry. He's frustrated like God is. Like God is seeing what we're doing and he's angry. He's frustrated. But at the same time, he has a love that moves him to win us back. Angry yet loving, all at the same time, which provokes God to move and win us back. And the same thing's happening to Paul because he's seeing, he's jealous. He's jealous that the people that God has made and created are not worshiping him as their God. And it's burning up in him. And then it says, because, because listen, here's an idol never chases you. You have to make it. An idol never pursues you. And an idol will never sacrifice for you. You sacrifice for it. But Paul knows of a God who has made a great sacrifice for all of his people. So it's breaking his heart that they can't find him, that they're not seeing him, that they're missing him. And it, this here, right now, we're getting to the core of the message of the book of Acts. If you want to know what Acts is all about, here's what it is right here. It's like all found almost in this word. Like God's people are jealous that God is not seen as God. And let me read to you some verses. This is in, the first one is going to be in Psalms. And here's what, it, this is about a heart that's burning within. And it's got, infer, it's got news that's got to get out. So it says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. And my heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. And then in the book of Jeremiah, if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. And then at the end of the Gospel of Luke, now Luke is the writer of Acts as well, so he's written these two books. And at the end of Acts, there's, there's a little scene that I think is bridging the two books together. And what's happened is two of the disciples, the apostles, are walking this road. And Jesus has just died, and they're mourning his death. 
and they can't believe it's happened. And then a mysterious traveler joins them on the road. And he sneaks up on them, and he starts beginning to explain to them from the scriptures why the Christ had to come and die. And then later they, they realize it's Christ, it's him. And then they say, looking back at this moment, they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up to us the scriptures? Look, here's how you know if you're reading the Bible the right way. You read it and it begins to burn in you. You have a truth in you that's burning. And as it's burning, it's burning until it gets out. Like it's burning to, to, to get out of you. So what's happening in the book of Acts is you have God's people who have a truth, a news about Christ in them that burns. And it's got to get out. It can't stay there. They're, they're, they're burning up inside to get this news out. What was Paul provoked to say? What was he burning to say? Well, the first thing he does is he points out that this is an unknown God. There's a statue that he finds. Among all of the statues, he finds one that says to the unknown God. And this is is the ember of hope that Paul has. The, The ancient Greeks had a God for everything. But what Paul has just realized is deep down, All of this whole city knows that all of these gods are too tiny. They're too small. There must be something bigger, they think, and so they create something. Because they know deep down they're unsatisfied and they know there's something else that they've missed. And this is the ember of hope. So let me ask you, why do you create all of these little gods? You make your jobs into gods. We make our success into the gods of our life. We make our family into our God. We make a lover into our God. We make uh, money into a God. We make power into a God. Why do we make all of these tiny gods? So that we can stay in control. If you have a small God, you get to reign. But if you have a big God, you lose control completely. And so to conquer God, we make him tiny. Because look, you look at God and you see him and he's wild with life. He's wise. He's powerful. And you see him and you say, I can't control him. And if he is this big and this good, I'm going to have to obey him. And I do not want that. So what we, here's what we do. In order to tickle this desire in us, like there's this place within every human that's meant for God. Like St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. So there's this place of you that desires rest that can only be found with resting in God. But we don't want him to take over our lives. It's too, it's too much. And so what we do is we create small gods in our lives, like our work, like our family, like good things that we turn into ultimate things. And by doing that, we have created a false remedy where we tickle the desire for a God, yet we remain in control. And it just doesn't work. And this is another way of us trying to conquer God and take his throne. A psychologist named Paul Vitz says, modern America 
is one of the most polytheistic cultures in history, meaning we have more gods than any culture had in the history of the world. He says it, it worships not thousands of gods, but 260 million. In other words, what he's saying is that we have all made ourselves into our own little tiny gods. We have made our God so tiny that we look bigger than him. We haven't, you know, God made us in his image and we returned the favor and tried to turn God into our image, but we actually made him a little smaller than us. So then we could reign on our own thrones. And the problem with this is that you can't defeat death. So in the end, what happens is you aren't actually in control at all. You're in less control than when you give yourself over to God. In fact, here's where you find yourself if you want to reign. If you make a tiny God, where you find yourself is exactly where Hosea's wife found herself. She goes to the Agora and is is being bid on. And what we find ourselves is in a spiritual Agora and all the gods that we have created in our mind are bidding for us. They're all trying to convince us that they're better or better for us than God is. And where they're naked, bruised, and broken. And we're empty because these gods aren't delivering for us. And I'll I'll tell you actually what these idols are doing is they're drooling from their fangs to devour you. Because they need you to live. And then Paul comes on the scene and he says, but there is an unknown God that doesn't devour you by taking your life, but he devours you with his love by giving his life. And let me just tell you, the statue of the unknown God is proof that God is the only one that satisfies because they've made gods of everything, but they still know something is missing, which means those gods aren't satisfying them. If I find in myself a desire that no idol in this world can satisfy. The only logical conclusion is I'm made for a greater God, a bigger God. Let me say that again. If I find, if 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 we find in ourselves, if we find in ourselves desires that no idol in this world can satisfy, we can only conclude we're made for a bigger God. Now. I have logically showed you that you should go to God, but it feels risky because you don't want to lose control. So what will finally convince you to go all in? And look, I know a lot of you are staying back from God, like you're not a Christian yet, and you're like, should I do this? I don't know. I'm scared a bit. I don't want to lose control. But some of you are Christians, and you have taken a step back from God. You have, as Jeremiah says, spread your legs to false gods. You need to hear something that will make you go all in all over again. And this is the flame. Paul was provoked. The words burned within him. And then he spoke them in the agora, the marketplace. He spoke them into a city that was frozen of idols. He spoke them. As he looked at the people, he saw Hosea's wife. He saw people like standing there. They they looked fully alive, but inside they were dying. They were empty. They were bruised and broken, and they felt like nobody wanted them. And he spoke of a God who would love them.
Now, I want you to see, I want to take a step back, and I just want to look at Paul and what he did and didn't do. He did not throw his hands up in despair. He was not angry at these people like giving up on them. He was not weeping helplessly, and he did not curse the people. And you know what else he didn't do? He didn't form a commune and go and live there isolated away from the city of Athens. He walked into the city with news that burned in his bones that he got out. And he did not enter into debates, though there probably would have been. What he did is enter into conversations. In fact, that was really what this looked like in this city, meaning he was on the streets. And it was popular to have somebody on a street corner bringing some news about some idea, and people would listen. So that's probably what was happening, and there was probably some conversations back and forth. But what I want you to know is he was not trying to win a debate. Now, my personality type, according to Myers-Briggs, um, is described in two ways. One, visionary. Second, as debater. Now, um, which ba- the debater part basically means, like, from my childhood on, I really annoyed almost everybody around me. And it's all, I did a lot of it, and, and I, I loved it. And I, didn't, I just assumed everybody else loved this, but it turns out they don't. And I had to learn to, like, not be that way. But because I did it so much and I liked it, I got good at it. Which means, with my wife Elise, when we get into an argument, well, I'm good at debating. So I can win all the arguments. And it's a problem. Because if I win all the arguments, I lose her in a way. Right? Because I'm not fighting for her, I'm fighting against her. And Paul, he's not seeking to crush anybody. He's seeking to win them over. He's been provoked out of both anger but also love to speak to them in a way where he's winsome and he wins them over. There was a recent Barna Group study that asked those who are skeptical of Christianity this. They said, it said, imagine a Christian who you would be interested in learning from. Which characteristics would you use to describe them? Here are the top four. Listens without judgment is honest about doubts, does not force a conclusion, and cares about them as a person. And Paul does all of these things. So listens without judgment. Here's what it means. It doesn't mean that Paul looked at them and didn't think what they were doing was wrong. What it means is when you, to have no judgment doesn't mean you aren't making an assessment like, oh, that's probably right or that's probably wrong. What it means is when you look at somebody who is outside of Christianity, you're not looking down on them. And here's why you're not. Because here's what you don't do. You don't walk into the agora or the marketplace and see Hosea's wife there and say, oh, I can't believe this. How has she gotten herself in this situation? No, the Christian does not say that because the Christian was there where she was. The Christian has been rescued. The Christian has heard the words, she is mine, he is mine, you are mine. So there's no reason to look down. In fact, that brings about so much empathy that you say, I can understand how you got to where you have gotten. 
I can understand why you believe what you believe. However, let me show you yet another way. And then when it says honest about doubts, the only person that can be honest about their doubts is someone with a big God. Because if you have a big God, here's what you realize. Your salvation is not based on the quality of your faith, but the quality of the person you have faith in. Did you hear that? If you have a big God, your salvation is not based on the quality of your faith, but the quality of the one you have faith in. And that means you can be honest about your doubts. All you need is like a little tiny mustard seed of faith. That's it. He, he, it's him. The quality of him, not your faith. So you can be honest. Not forcing a decision means that you understand you aren't the one who saves somebody. It's not because you spoke so eloquently. It's not because of how great you are. It is simply because of the greatness of God. And if that is true, you don't force a decision on somebody. You're not trying to prove how great you are. You're simply being faithful. You simply have some words in you that are burning to get out, and you let them out, and you just let God do what God's going to do. He's sovereign. He's in control not you. And then when it says they care, this is what is driving Paul. I'll answer. You want me to answer? That'd be fun. So, so, so listen, when it says care, what is driving Paul is his jealousy, but it's another way to say he cares deeply because he looks at what's happening and he's angered by it. Like, the whole city has been tricked in Paul's mind and it disturbs him. Yet he loves them so much that he is moved to act. That's what caring looks like. Now, I want to tell you this because now some of you are thinking, David, does that mean I have to be like Paul and go and preach in the Agora? And the answer is no. I'm a preacher. Most of you are not. But you do have a gift. There's something that God has called you to. There's something that God has made you to love. And so when we, when we apply this, like these words that are burning within you to get out, yes, not here, but in the Bible, you should bring this word to your neighborhood, uh, your workplace, to the people that you love, like in, in ways that are wise and good. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying take the message into the agora, into the marketplace, into the place where ideas are being exchanged and formed and, and, and taught, which, which means that we don't just need preachers. In fact, today, preachers are probably the, the least able to bring this news into the agora. But what we need is songwriters, storytellers, screenwriters, business leaders, entrepreneurs, journalists that have a burning in their bones that is desiring to get out. It's like you're taking this to the marketplace. Whatever it is that God has wired you with and for, you just do it. And you just let see what happens. But there's a burning in you that has to get out. And that shows itself in creativity, in art. It shows itself in everyday things that you do that God has wired you to go and do. 
I met a couple people for coffee this week at a coffee shop, and they were setting up for a open mic night. That's the agora. That's a place where ideas are being sung about. That's the place where like, deep desires are being expressed. And so you take a place like that, and, and, well, should you bring a clear gospel message there? Well, maybe. But you know what you can also do is you can create a yearning for the gospel in a place like that. In fact, it's ripe for it. It's the place to exchange ideas. So that's what Paul does. He goes into the agora and does the thing that he's good at. And when he does, the intellectual elites of the day hear it. And they invite him into the Areopagus. Now, there's nothing today that we can compare to the Areopagus, but we could maybe call it like something like a TED Talk to the wisest and greatest and most profound professors of the day all gathered together to hear what Paul has to say, and they're asking questions, and he's answering back with them. So what does Paul say to them? Well, the verses tell us that there are Stoics and Epicureans there. So Paul is so wise. So the Stoics believed that God is like in this. It's in everything. It's very pantheistic. It's like God is everything. He's everywhere. He's in us. He's in everything. And that's where God is confined. And Paul says, the statue of the unknown God, he is not in things the way you think. He is the creator of all things. He's the maker of it. The Stoics believed at the end of life you're swallowed up into the earth and you're just kind of recycled there. Paul brings a message of resurrection. But then to the Epicureans, the Epicureans believe not that God is here, but God is way far off. He is so far off, he cares nothing for you, wants nothing to do with you. He made you and just walked away. And to the Epicureans, he says, but God is the sustainer of life, which means he's intimate with us. So what he's just done is, create, is shown that God is the creator. He's big, but yet he's also with. And then he says in this God, you can't make him with human hands. In fact, he made your hands. And you have used those hands to make false gods. It's like, it's the irony of our rebellion where God has made our hands, he's crafted them in such a way to be able to make some amazing things, and then we make amazing things that we end up worshiping as a, and turning our backs on the creator. And then he says, God does not depend on us, but we can depend on him. He says, God does not need us to survive. He's enough in and of himself. But then he says, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. Well, what's that mean? Well, it means we're made in the image of God. It means if you want to know who you are, stop looking in here. If you look in here, you're just a mirror that twists in on itself. And you know what? A mirror that twists in on itself finds nothing. It's just like recycling the same thing and finds a never arriving at anything real and truthful. But if you'll turn outside of yourself and look at God, you'll know who you are and you'll begin to reflect him. This is the greatest, the greatest news 
that our culture so badly needs to hear is that who you are is not found in here. And if you'll just look out at God, you're going to be you're going to be reflecting something divine. If you want to know your purpose in life, stop looking in and look out to him. If you want to know your meaning in life, stop looking in and look out and up to him. If you want to have joy and peace and strength, stop trying to find it here. Stop trying to find it in things of the earth, but find it in something eternal. So then you'll have eternal joy, eternal peace, and eternal strength that cannot be taken from you by any circumstance that this world throws at you. Christ is no small God, but he is the image, as it says, of the invisible God. And he came in the flesh so we might, what? Know the unknown God. In him is eternity, and he's brought it here. In him, eternity entered time. In him, heaven entered the earth. In him, the creator entered into his own creation. Why? So we might know him and be known by him. Now, the question then becomes, can you trust him? Will he devour you like all the other idols? And the answer is he will most certainly devour you, but in the best kind of way. He is both terrible and good. Or the way that C.S. Lewis describes Asland as, he, is, he, is he safe? No, he is not safe, but he is very good. He's come for you. So you can trust him. Well, yes, 100% you can trust him, but he is absolutely terrifying. But when you look at him, it's like, oh, this, is, this feels like such a risk. But then you look at the love that he has for you. And the cost he was willing to pay. And you say, ah, I have to risk it. I'm all in. I'm going through this door and there is no turning back for me. I'm all in. How did he win you over? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He took the idols that are devouring you. That you are gladly giving yourself over to. And he rips them from you. And you're holding on to me. He said, I'm taking these. And he takes them from you. It says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And if that's true, then that, what that means is he's also holding on to the things, like the things of sin, which are our, our idols. And so he holds on to them, and they try to squirm out of his hands. But then we, humanity, the ones he made, nail him to the cross. But when we nail him to the cross, we nail our idols in with him. And when he dies, they die, and he brings them down into the fiery depths of hell, and there they burn up, and now we're free. But now we've lost our, our love. And in the silence of that death, we hear the voice that rings like a golden bell. You are mine. And we look up and we see our risen God, our risen King, our risen Lord. And when he rises, all the idols of the world go running into the holes in their hills because they're terrified of him, but not us, because we know that he loves us and we can trust him with all of our entire being. And when that is true, when you see that in him and you go to him, now 
you see that he entered into time to make us eternal. He entered into the earth to carry us to heaven. And he, the creator, entered into creation so we can be bound to him. And now, forever, we can actually truly say it's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. Forever and always now, we can look up as mirrors and see the one who is our great joy. And we can be filled with joy because he is joy. And if you look at the one who is joy, then you have joy in you as a mirror. If you look at the one who is love, then what you have now in you is the love of the one that you're looking at. If you want to know what just is, you look at him. If you want to see something beautiful, look at him, and then you become beautiful because as a mirror, you're looking at him. Everything is about him and just looking at him. So just go to him. And when you do, He'll never let you go because you are his and he is yours forever. Let's pray. Father, in your goodness, you have not left us alone, but you have sent your son who is the image of the invisible God. God, we don't want to just hear this and let it go in one ear and out the other but we want this to move us to you. So the things in our life that we're holding on to that are keeping us from you like idols that are trying to devour us, God, I pray that we would let them go. And when we can't, that you would rip their fangs out of us, that you would rip their grip away from us and that you would bring us into yourself. Help us, God. We need you. Rescue us, save us. We're calling out, we're looking for you in the agora. We long to hear the words, you are mine. So speak them now into our souls and in our hearts and in our minds so we might see this irresistible love that you have for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at Grove Church PSL and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.